You guys can turn to Exodus chapter 1 as we continue our journey through the Pentateuch today. We'll actually start in chapter 1. Most of it today will be in chapters 2 through 4. One of my favorite kinds of stories, whether it's a book or a movie, are stories about people who did great things. They became great people, but they came out of a really tragic or hard background. That's, that's really a great story arc. It's really fun to hear about. So some of my favorite stories, I'll share them with you. Uh, one of mine is about Albert Einstein. Um, I kind of look up to the guy because I'm kind of nerdy. Like he was great physicist, amazing guy. Did you know that Albert Einstein, for the first three years of his life, he never spoke a word? When he went off to elementary school, his teachers believed that he was lazy and would never amount to anything. He's Einstein, like E equals MC squared guy. They were so wrong. Here's another one for you. Stephen King, great author. Did you know that the first book that he wrote, his first big novel, he was rejected by publishers 30 times in a row when he sent that novel in. He was so fed up, he threw it in the trash and walked away from writing. His wife uh, discovered it, rescued it from the trash, and convinced him to try just one more publisher. Now he sold 350 million copies of his books. Oprah Winfrey, did you know she was born to an unwed teenage mom and sent to live in rural poverty? She was so poor growing up that she wore potato sacks as dresses. Then she was sexually abused for a lot of her life. And now... She's Oprah. She's one of the richest and most successful women in the world. I love those stories because it inspires us to see, well, if this person could have, could have come from such a tragic, broken past and yet still had such a significant life, well, then there's hope for us. Well, that's actually a very biblical kind of story. God loves to use people with ugly, broken, tragic pasts and do amazing things through them. And that's true for the hero of of our story in Exodus, Moses. Moses is going to be the hero for most Sunday mornings this fall as we look at what God did in this nation. Moses is an amazing, heroic figure who delivers Israel from slavery. And when when you think about Moses, you tend to think of him as a hero, as an example of the faith. I mean, Moses, who's better than that? But what we'll see this morning is actually Moses didn't start out that way. Long before Moses was a great hero of the faith, he was actually an old, forgotten, cowardly fugitive, a murderer hiding out in the desert in fear. For much of what we'll look at this morning, Moses is not a hero in any sense of the word. And what that's meant to prove to us is that if God can use a man like Moses to change the world for the better, he can use any of us. If you feel like your past is just so full of sin and tragedy that God could never use you, Moses is the proof that yes, he can. If you feel like you currently have so many physical or mental limitations that God could never use you, Moses is proof. Yes, he can. Things like addiction and divorce and incarceration and uh, disability and medical limitations, physical limitations, none of these things prevent God from being able to use you for big, significant, world-changing tasks. That's the kind of God we have, and Moses is our proof. So this morning, we're going to look at Moses's origin story. This is like the part of the superhero movie where the guy or girl is not a hero yet. 
So you're finding out what was true of their life before they became a hero. That's Moses. So at no point in our story this morning is he yet a hero. So let's, let's discover his origin story. Um, Moses' origin story, it actually begins with a little background that you need to know about Israel. So it begins with the nation of Israel's affliction in Egypt. If you look with me, we're going to pick it up in chapter 1 of Exodus, starting in verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Jump down to verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son of Israel who is born, you are to cast into the Nile. And every daughter you are to keep alive. So Israel, recall from last week, Israel refers to the ethnic group that descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom we now call the Jews. So the nation of Israel, they were called by God to be a kingdom of priests, bringing God's blessing to the world. This nation was blessed by God to be a blessing to the rest of the world. But when we meet them here in Exodus, they don't look look very blessed at this moment. They're in Egypt. Now, they've been in Egypt for about 400 years before Moses shows up. And at the beginning, it was actually good. God brought them to Egypt to deliver them from famine going on back in Canaan. And when they first came to Egypt, they were prosperous and they multiplied. They were blessed. And yet, after a while, the Egyptians grew jealous and afraid of them. And so the Egyptians crafted this plan. Well, let's enslave the Israelites. We'll keep them down. And so they forced the Israelites into slavery. And yet the Israelites continued to multiply. And the more they multiplied, the more the Egyptians turned the screws of oppression. And made their labor harsher and harsher. And when that wasn't enough, the Egyptians moved to phase two, which was genocide. And so they basically ruled that every male child of Israel must be put to death. The idea is you wipe out all the boys and eventually the ethnic group will come to an end. So what you have going on in Egypt is genocide. This is Holocaust level brutality that the Egyptians are afflicting on the Israelites for generations. And so the Israelites begin to cry out for a deliverer and God chooses Moses. So let's begin to look at the life of Moses. In his early years, the big idea of Moses' life is we'll see how protected he was by God himself. So look at me, with me at chapter 2 of Exodus. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. This is the tribe of Israel, so we're talking a Jewish family. The woman conceived and bore a son. 
And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile and her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mom. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. So at the beginning of Moses' story, I want you to notice the bravery here. The bravery of his parents. So his parents have been commanded, if you have a male child, you must kill him. They don't. They hide him as long as they can. But Moses is a little boy and he starts to make noises and and make messes. And they know at some point an Egyptian is going to see this boy and they're going to put him to death. And so they do the only thing they can think to do, which is to create a waterproof basket for him. They'll put the baby in the basket, send him down the Nile, away from the capital city, where maybe somebody can raise him and he can be safe. So this is bravery on their part. The next thing to notice is God's sovereignty. I mean, what are the chances that that the princess of Egypt, the daughter of Pharaoh, would be bathing at this part of the river at this particular time? God sets it up. This woman was one of the few people who could actually defy Pharaoh because it's her dad. So she sees this baby and rescues her. And then the next thing to notice is the bravery of Moses' older sister. Do you notice what she was doing? She followed the basket. She kind of she kept watch on it to see if she needs to rescue it. And, and Pharaoh's daughter finds the basket and Moses' sister does an incredibly brave thing. She walks out of the reeds and presents herself to Pharaoh's daughter and says, can I find a, a Hebrew nurse to care for this little Hebrew baby for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says, okay. And then did you notice how cool it is? Who ends up being Moses' nurse? Moses' mom. So how cool is that, that God reunited the mom with the son, and then I love it, she gets paid to raise her own kid. How awesome is that? She gets wages from Pharaoh's daughter for raising her own boy. And so the idea from the very beginning is how gracious God is to Moses. God allows Moses to grow up with his own mom, which was unheard of in that day, in in the house of the king of Egypt, a place of privilege and protection. So Moses has this incredible privilege and protection from God upon him. But what happens next? Well, when Moses grows up and enters his adulthood, things go badly. He he makes a, a, a bad decision and basically throws away all that privilege and protection that God had graciously given him. So look with me, starting in verse 11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now, at one point in time, I used to read that and think, well, I guess that's a good thing. I mean, it's a bad dude. And and so Moses kills the oppressor. Isn't that good? Well, there's no evidence at all that this was a good decision. God did not ask Moses to do this. What God said back in Genesis 9 was, thou shalt not kill. 
Moses had the ability to do something good about this. Remember, he lives in, in the court of the king. He's being raised by Pharaoh's own, do- own daughter. He had influence. He could have gone into Pharaoh's throne room and advocated for the Jews. He could have advocated, can you get rid of this Egyptian who is hurting them? But he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives in to anger. And that's going to become a pattern in Moses' life. He frequently gives in to, into rage, into anger, and makes a bad decision. In this case, a violent decision. He kills this guy, and it doesn't work out well for him. So there's nothing admirable here in what Moses does. It goes badly for him. Look at the next verse. Verse 13. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, "'Why are you striking your companion?' But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So Pharaoh gets wind of what Moses did and and comes after Moses. And Moses doesn't stand up for the Jews. Once again, all he does is run away. He just flees off into the wilderness. He runs and hides out as a fugitive in the wilderness for the next 40 years. For four decades, he is off alone, isolated, insignificant in the wilderness, a cowardly fugitive who killed a guy. If this is where Moses' story ends, you wouldn't know his name because he would have never been heroic. There's nothing heroic about him up to this point, not in any way. We would have just forgotten completely about him. And so you look at Moses at this point in the story, and you should ask yourself, surely this isn't the kind of guy God would use, right? I mean, you you got a guy who had all this privilege, and he threw it all away in a moment of anger. And then when he got caught, he ran away as a coward, not caring about anybody else, just living alone as a fugitive in the desert. Surely that's not the kind of person God would use, right? Well, you know where the story is going. God is going to use this cowardly man, this angry Man, this failure of a man to do amazing things. And that's the lesson for us. God can use failures like Moses to do amazing things in this world for good. So let's look at how God is going to use Moses. It begins with a call. God is going to call Moses to a significant task in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Exodus. Now what's really significant about this moment when God calls Moses, Moses is 80 years old. 80. He hasn't done anything admirable with his life. He hasn't done anything to honor God with his life. He's 80 years old, and now God is going to call him to a significant task. That's, that's really cool, because um, most of us in this room are not yet 80. And what that means is no matter how old and used up you might feel, Moses is proof that God is not done with you. Moses is proof that you are not too old to be used by God for significant world-changing stuff. So it's at 80 that God calls Moses. Let's look at that call. It begins in chapter 3. So let's pick it up in verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he, fled, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. 
Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. This call upon Moses' life, it it begins with God's character. Before God tells Moses what to do, he reminds Moses of who he is. And and in particular, there's a couple things that stand out here. God wants Moses to know, number one, that he is holy. That's the whole reason for removing your shoes. This is holy ground, Moses. You need to recognize it's holy. What does holiness mean here? When the word holy is used of God, it means he is utterly unlike us. It means God is not like us. He's not like the gods of Egypt. He's not like Pharaoh. God is transcendent. He is magnificent. He is the creator. All else is the creation. He is utterly unlike us. And and when Moses is faced with the holiness of God, there is only one thing to do. What does Moses do? Bows down in fear. That's the right response to the holiness of God is, is a sense of holy terror. God, you are so great. You are unimaginably great, and I bow before you. So God reminds Moses first of his holiness. Second, God reminds him of his faithfulness. We talked about that last week. That God made this oath to Abraham, this promise, solemn promise, covenant to Abraham, and and God would do whatever it took to fulfill that promise. And and that's what God is telling Moses. I've heard, I've seen. What Israel is suffering. I'm going to act because I'm faithful to my promises. God is always faithful. And it is God's faithfulness to his promise to the Jews that drives the whole plot of this book of Exodus. So, God begins with his own character. Then, having reminded Moses of who he is, it's time to give Moses his job. And that's verse 10. So, Moses gets his job orders, his task, his calling in verse verse 10. Then Moses said to the, oh, wrong chapter, verse 10. Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh that he may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So God says, Moses, you are my instrument to bring deliverance to the Israelites. I'm sending you to Egypt to lead them out of slavery. Now that that sounds like an incredible honor. Moses, you are the guy who is going to bring about deliverance for millions of Israelites. What an incredible honor, but Moses doesn't see it that way. Remember, we're in kind of this disobedient middle of Moses' life. And so when Moses gets this amazing call, he is not happy about it. And so for the rest of this chapter and the next chapter, Moses is going to give excuse after excuse to God to try to get out of this call. He doesn't want to do this job. So we're going to take each excuse that Moses gives, because they're excuses that we commonly make. When God calls us to do something, we're going to see how God shoots down each excuse that Moses makes. So, excuse number one that Moses is going to make in chapter 3, verse 11, is, Well, God, I am insignificant. Look with me at verse 11 of chapter 3. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? 
What Moses is saying is, why would you send somebody like me? I'm nothing. No one will listen to me. Now, to some extent, Moses is actually right here. He is insignificant. Because remember, he'd been wandering the wilderness alone for 40 years. 40 years is longer than most people lived back then. So most people who would know Moses and the privilege in which he grew up back in Egypt, they're dead. No one knows Moses. He's just some crazy shepherd from out in the desert. So he is insignificant. That that makes sense that Moses puts this forth as an excuse. So let's see how God shoots it down. Look with me starting in verse 12. And he, that is God, said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now we talked about that name last week, Yahweh. The personal name of God. When God was asked, what name would you like us to call you? He chose the name in Hebrew, I am. That's a powerful name. Not I was, not I will be. I am the ever-present one without beginning, without end. He is changeless. This is a powerful name. So what is God telling Moses? Moses' excuse was, God, I can't do it. I'm not significant enough. What God is saying to Moses is, well, I am with you and I'm significant enough for the both of us. That's God's point. When God calls you to do something, it does not matter how significant you are in the eyes of the world. If God calls you to do something, he goes with you. I will be with you. And if I am is with you, he is significant enough for the both of you. I I, kind of think of this like um, when I was trying to explain to my son. This is a few years ago in math class. They were learning the concept of infinity, and he was trying to wrap his mind around it. And and one of the things that we talked about, I could just see his eyes open. That just like dawned on him when he got this. Infinity plus one equals infinity plus a million. Did you know that? Why? Because it's infinity. It's, It's already everything. doesn't matter if you add one to it or a million to it. It's still infinity. That's what God is saying. Moses, it doesn't matter if you're the most significant human who's ever lived or the least significant human who ever lived. I have infinite significance. I'm going with you, so your significance doesn't matter. When God calls you to do something in this world, it doesn't matter whether you feel like you're big stuff or nothing. God will go with you, and he's significant enough for the both of you. So your significance in the eyes of the world doesn't matter at all. God has shot down that excuse. Second excuse that Moses will give to try to get out of this calling upon his life. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. Let's skip down a little bit. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say the Lord has not appeared to you. This excuse that Moses is giving, ultimately it's it's a fear-based excuse. Moses is afraid of rejection. What if they don't believe me? What if, what if they laugh at me? What if they don't do what I'm telling them to do? God, what about that? Okay, so a lot of us have felt this before, this fear of rejection, fear that, God, if I do what you're saying, it's not going to go well. How is God going to respond to that? Let's look at verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. 
Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. God is actually going to give Moses two more miraculous signs in the next few verses. Why is God doing this? Why is God giving Moses these miracles? The point that God is trying to make to Moses is, well, Moses, when I go with you, my power goes with you too. And my power is sufficient for whatever I ask you to do. God has infinite power, not just infinite significance, but infinite power. And so whatever God calls us to do in this life, if he calls us, he'll go with us and his power is coming with him. And so there is sufficient power for whatever is needed. Now, if you know where the story goes, Moses is going to go to Egypt and uh, Pharaoh's not going to like it. And, and Moses is going to face a lot of opposition. Pharaoh is going to resist Moses. Who's going to win in the end? Moses. Why? Because God is with him and God is far more powerful than Pharaoh. God is going to work all those crazy plagues, all those crazy miraculous signs, far bigger than just a staff and a snake. Because God has infinite power, God will win. He will accomplish whatever he calls you to do. So fear of rejection, fear of failure in the mission God has called you to is never a legitimate excuse. Because if God tells you to do something, he goes with you and his power is coming. And it's plenty sufficient for whatever he wants you to do. Okay, so second excuse is, is knocked down. Moses is not done yet. Okay, so Moses has another excuse ready to go. So uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Look down at verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. What Moses is saying to God is, God, I'm not cut out for this. I, I can't speak well in public, and, and you need that for this kind of job, so please send somebody else. This is, this is an excuse about skill or, or adequacy. The, the idea here is, God, I don't have the skills that this job needs. I'm inadequate for this task that you've called me to. So if there's something that you feel God has called you to, but you, don't, you feel like, and I... I don't have enough ability. I, I'm not intelligent enough for that. I'm not strong enough for that. I don't have the right personality for that. That's this excuse. For some reason, God, I'm inadequate to this task you've called me to. I can't do it. So how is God going to respond to that? Look with me. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 11. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then, Go. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. I think God's getting a little frustrated at this point. There there is some sarcasm in this verse. What God is saying to Moses is, Moses, who gave you that mouth? Who gave you that tongue? Who gave you that ability to speak? I did. I am the sovereign creator and I don't make mistakes. Moses, I gave you exactly the mouth that I need you to have to do what I'm telling you to do. And so God's point, what he's trying to help us understand is that God made us exactly as he wants us to be for the tasks that he calls us to perform. So if you look at your life, you look at yourself and you feel like, gosh, I'm not smart enough. I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not social enough. I don't have the right personality. I'm not strong enough. You need to remember God made you exactly as you are. With that brain and that body and that personality and those limitations and that level of energy, he gave you exactly what he intended you to have for the tasks he will call you for in this life. I love Psalm 139 
where David says to God, beautiful psalm, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. God knitted you together in your mother's womb. The body you have, the mind you have, the speech you have, personality you have, mental ability you have, everything that you have, God formed in you. And he did it sovereignly. He knew what you'd be like. He knew this would be you today. He made you exactly as you needed to be at this moment so that you, with his strength, can accomplish everything he's called you to do. So your limitations are never an excuse when God calls you because your limitations don't limit him. He made you exactly as he intended. You were exactly the man or woman he wanted for this task at this time. So that excuse is shot down. If God calls us to something, he's made us exactly what we need to be for that task at that time. So that excuse is shot down, but Moses is not done yet. He's got one more. One more excuse to go. It's verse 13. But Moses said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. That's not humility. Moses is not saying, oh, sovereign God, send whoever you want to do this task. No, this is obstinacy. Moses is saying, God, I don't want to do this. Please send someone else. We're now to the heart of the matter. This is ultimately behind what was all the excuses. Moses doesn't want to go. He doesn't want this calling in his life. It's not his desire to do this thing God is calling him to do. I got to be honest with you. I understand that feeling. I understand that. I think for most of us who are middle age or above, who've been walking with the Lord for a long time, we know what Moses is saying. We felt it. At first, when you're walking with the Lord and he calls you to new things, there's an excitement there. Yeah, it's hard, but it's thrilling to do this new thing God has called you. But, but you, you obey God and you walk with God and you do this thing that he's called you to do year after year, decade after decade. And at some point, you just feel worn out. And you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. This is hard. I, I often i am asked to go to lunch with college guys who are considering a life of ministry, of, of becoming a pastor. And we'll sit down for lunch, and they'll just tell me how excited they are. Just excited about the thought, man, I could be a pastor. People would pay me to do ministry. How amazing is that? And I'm, I'm excited for their excitement. But if I'm honest, <laughs> if I'm honest on that particular day, I'll tell them, well, I can tell you after 16 years, there are going to be days when you would rather do anything other than this. And if you've been doing your job or career for 16 or more years, I'm pretty sure you have days like that too. Your job or your career started and it was exciting. It was thrilling. Yeah, it's hard. But, but you're excited about it. This is a good thing. This is a big thing. I'm excited to do this thing. But after the decades go by, you find out how hard and how disappointing and how lonely it is to walk through this life. And, and you just don't want to do it anymore. I, I know that feeling. When we walk with the Lord year after year, we find that it is hard and it is difficult and it is painful. Why? Because life this side of heaven is hard and difficult and painful. It it is for everyone. And so at some point, God is going to call you to something and you're just going to be honest and say, God, I don't want to do that. That's hard and painful and disappointing. Please, I don't want to do it. That's what Moses is saying. So how is God going to respond to that? Look with me at the next verse. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. And he said, is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. 
And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff, with which you shall perform the signs. Period. Verse 18, then Moses departed. That's it, end of the conversation. Last excuse shot down. What is God saying? Well, let's start at the very beginning. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. Let's talk about that for a moment. Why is God upset with Moses for saying, God, I just don't want to do this? Uh, It's very much like how I feel when my kids tell me for the 20th time they don't want to do their homework. I'm frustrated because, guys, I didn't give you this homework. You got to do it. Right now, you got to sit down and do this homework. It would actually be selfish of me as a father if in that moment I surrendered to their desires. I mean, it would be easier. I could just tell them, yeah, man, I understand. You don't want to do it. Why don't you go find something else fun to do? That'd be easy. They go off, they're happy. But that would be selfish of me. I'd be a bad dad because what's best for them? To do the homework. And so I tell them, just sit down and get it done. That's what's best for you. You've got to do that. That's why God feels the way he does towards Moses. He wants Moses to understand, Moses, this is what's best for you. I'm tired of your excuses. It is time to get it done. Because Moses, this is what's best for you. Obeying my call is best for your life. And Moses, please remember the two million people in slavery down in Egypt. What's best for them? For you to do what I'm telling you to do. God loves Moses and the Jews too much to surrender his will to Moses' feelings. And we just have to face facts. When God calls us to do something, our feelings are not what's most important to him. Does he know our feelings? Yes. Does he care about our feelings? Yes. But it's not what's most important. He is not going to let our emotions, he's not going to let the fact that we don't want to do it keep him from calling us to what he knows is best for us. What he created us for, the high and noble calling he designed you for, he's not going to let your feelings about that calling trump his determination to use you in significant ways. And so that's what I remind myself on the days that I don't want to be a pastor. At least for this moment in time, God has called me to this task. And God loves me. And he loves the people I serve too much to surrender the call to my emotions. He is determined to use me for what is best in his eyes. Same for you. If God calls you to something and you tell him, I don't want to do this. God says, yeah, I know. And I care about your emotions, but I'm not going to let your emotions trump what I know is best. I designed you to do this task. This is why you are here. You are here to bless people around you. I love them too much to surrender this call to your emotions. So just do it. And that's ultimately what God is telling Moses. Yeah, it sounds harsh. God says, just do it. Go. We're done with the excuses. Now, what I love is that after this moment of anger... Moment that sounds harsh, Moses, just do what I say. God then acts compassionately towards Moses. What does he tell Moses? Well, Moses, I'm going to send somebody with you. I will give you a companion along the way to help you shoulder this painful burden. And so God gives Moses Aaron to be a brother and a a companion in this task to help him carry the load. God does the same for us. 
In my burden, in, in this ministry, God has provided a, a loving and supportive wife. He's provided some of my best friends, Matt and Brian and Trey. They're like my best friends in life, and they do this job with me. They, they shoulder it with me. God will do the same for you. He will provide companionship for you in the burdensome task he calls you to. And so now Moses has no excuses left. It's, it's done. He is off on his mission. And you know God is going to use Moses. And it's going to be incredible. He's going to change the world. But at some point Moses had to say, okay. And finally at the end here, he takes his staff and he goes. He's willing to obey. So the challenge for us is to look at our own lives and say, what's, what's the application for us? Okay, so we need to learn from Moses. The challenge is, I'm guessing that none of us have seen a burning bush that doesn't burn. That would be really cool. I've not had that. So what have I been called to? Well, God hasn't shown up in my life and spoken audibly to me. I think he does to some people, but not to most of us. So what is God's calling on our lives? There, there will be unique aspects of God's calling. Each of us will have some unique task or tasks that are true just for us in God's economy. But when you read through the New Testament, you discover there's actually a lot of common calls. Basically, things that God calls all of us to do. Calls from God that are true for every believer. So I want to walk you through some of those. I I don't have a comprehensive list. It would take hours to walk you through them all in the New Testament. I'm just going to give you six because I actually have exactly six minutes left. So just enough. So six things that are true for all of us. God has called you and me to these six Things. So number one thing God's called us to is eternal life. First Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead to purchase eternal life for us as a free gift. Well now, God is calling all of us, believe. Receive that gift of eternal life. Turn to Jesus and be saved. Receive forgiveness in heaven as a free gift. That's God's first calling on your life. That's the most important one. Without that one, none of the others matter. This is the first one. So hopefully everyone in this room has had some moment where you responded to that call. You answered God and said, yes, I want that gift of eternal life that Jesus earned for me by dying for my sins and rising from the dead. Once you say yes to the call to eternal life, then the next calls come into effect. So for all of us who have said yes to the gift of eternal life, second thing we're called to is holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. God has called all of us to holiness. Here it means righteousness. It means obedience. God has called all believers to obey him in every area of life at all times. So God has called us to holiness. Third, God has called all of us to suffer. This is the one we wish wasn't true, right? <laughs> this is the one we wish wasn't true of this reality, but it is. 1 Peter 2.21, to this suffering you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. God has called all of us to endure suffering well. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Our Savior was crucified by this world. We will suffer as well. So you are expected by God to endure when you are ridiculed and rejected and humiliated for the sake of Christ. You're called to that. Fourth thing we are all called to. We're called to make disciples. Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
Making disciples, that's my job. That is also your job. Every single person in this room is called to that same job. We're called to make disciples. We do that in two ways. First, we share the good news of Jesus with those who don't yet know him. We share Jesus in our words and in our deeds so that they'll come to know Jesus. Then for those who come to know Jesus, second thing we do is we train them up. We train them up to follow Jesus in every way. That's discipleship. All of us are called to that task. Fifth thing we're all called to, serve the vulnerable. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The last part, keep oneself unstained by the world, that's back to that second calling called to holiness. The first part is a new one. We are called to visit widows and orphans in their distress. Visit, just so you know, it's kind of a weak word in English. Visit in Greek doesn't just mean go knock on their door and say, hi, I hope you're happy. It means to actually engage in life with them. You come alongside them, you get to know them, you get to see their struggles, and then you sacrifice what is yours to meet their needs. So you're caring for them. Why widows and orphans? Because those were the two most vulnerable groups in the ancient world. So today, the application is whoever the vulnerable groups are in our community, we are all called by God, expected by God to sacrifice our time, treasure, and talent to care for them and meet their needs. Sixth thing we are all called to do, 1 Corinthians 7.17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the calling to faithfulness in your particular life stage. In that chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's talking about how each of us has a a unique life stage. Some are single, some are married without kids, some are married with kids, some are married and the kids have moved out, you now have grandkids. Each of us has a, a particular life stage. We are called by God to be faithful in that life stage. Faithfulness in a life stage means you are content, you are being grateful for that particular life stage, you're using that life stage to serve the Lord and those around you. Okay, so six things at a minimum that all of us are called to do. Again, I could make the list much longer and it doesn't include the particular unique things you are called to do, but these are true for all of us. And so as you look at that list, my question for you is how are you doing? Have you said yes to each of those callings that is on your life? Because they are. If one of those is like a surprise to you, really? Are you sure? Yes. Yes, that is. You are called to that one. So as you look at that list, is there one or two or three there that you're like, man, I, I've not been following the Lord there. I've not been embracing that calling upon my life and walking in that task. Then the question is, so why? Are, are you making one of the excuses that Moses has made, that Moses made? When, when God calls you to something, are you making excuses that keep you from obeying God and saying yes to that call? So let me give you a few examples. Called to holiness. Maybe you know you are called to holiness, but there is some area of your life where you are struggling with a bad habit or an addiction and you've given up. Like, God, I know you've said I need to be holy here. I need to obey you here, but I can't. It's, it's a bad habit. It's an addiction. I can't overcome it. It just is what I am. Just accept me as I am, God. God says, no. No, I've called you to holiness in every area of your life. So what are you going to do? If you've got a bad habit or an addiction, what you need to do is you need to join Celebrate Recovery. Or you need to come talk to a pastor or a counselor. You need to get help because God will not excuse that area of sin in your life. He has called you to holiness in every area. Or maybe you look at that list and you see number four, called to make disciples. And you think about that coworker or the classmate or the person who lives in the apartment or dorm next to you who doesn't know Jesus. And, and you know that they don't know Jesus, but you haven't yet had the courage to share Jesus with them because you're afraid of rejection. Like, what if it gets all uncomfortable? What if they don't like me anymore? 
What if it's awkward? Well, God is saying to you today, that's not a legitimate excuse. If God has called you to share the faith with them, which if they don't know Jesus and no one else is talking about him, you need to be the one to do it. If God has called you to do that, well, God has said, I go with you, my power comes with you, and that is sufficient for everything you need. So go. It's time to go. Or maybe you look at that list and you see number five, call to serve the vulnerable. You say, well, but the vulnerable, the poor, they're messy. Their situations are hard. They're painful. I, I don't want to do that. That's hard. That takes sacrifice. God is saying to you, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's hard. It's painful. It's messy. I've called you to that. That is why you're here on earth. That's part of your calling. You need to step out. Find where the poor are and care for them in some sacrificial way because that's why you're here. As you look at that list, you are called to all six of those. So I want you to walk out of here owning one of those for new in a fresh way today. I want you to, to choose one on the list that you're doing poorly with. And I want you to say, God, I've been making excuses here. I need your help. Please, just like you did for Moses, knock down that excuse and help me to follow you in this calling because I believe it's worth it. I believe you love me and those I'm called to serve too much to surrender this call to my emotions. Please, God, help me to obey. Let's pray and ask God to do that in our lives. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have called us to do significant things in this world. You do not need us. There, there is no task that needs to be done on this planet for which we are necessary. You didn't need Moses. You could have just snapped your fingers and delivered Israel. You don't need us, but in grace and in mercy, you choose to use us. You, you want to use humans like us, finite, fallen, sinful humans, to do eternally significant things. We thank you for that, God. We, we thank you that you believe, you know, that as as old, as weak, as tired, as finite, as fallen, as sinful as we are, with your power, your strength, your spirit, your presence, we can do incredible things. We praise you for that. Help everyone in this room to believe that, God. Especially help those who who feel like they've fallen too far to ever be useful to you in this life. Please break through that lie and help them to see in Moses' own example that it is not too late for them. I pray for all of us, Lord, who who have heard your call in, in one of these areas of life or maybe something even that's not on the screen that you've called each of us to, I pray, God, that you would help us to stop making excuses. I pray that your spirit would convict us and challenge us. I pray that we would believe that though we are inadequate and weak and unskilled, that you go with us and that you have enough significance, enough power, enough skill, enough ability to accomplish everything you've called us to do. I pray that we would trust you, that we would walk in obedience with you, and that we would follow your calling on our lives so that through this church, you can accomplish amazing, wonderful things in this community and throughout the world. We praise you, Father. You are the great I am. All the strength we need is found in you. We praise you, God, in your name and for your glory we say, amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.